welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. And today we're joined by the main man, the main event, Bishop Robert Barron. Welcome, Bishop. <laughs> Muhammad Ali of, of uh, evangelization. You know, I need to come uh, up with like a creative uh, entrance theme, like wrestlers come out with the smoke and the music and, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got your How like you- special moves. Get your big brain around that one. You could work on that. A couple of exciting things happened recently. One of them is that your interview with Jordan Peterson finally went live. And yeah. listen, to all of our fans, it wasn't our fault. It took so long. It was in Dr. Peterson's court to release it. We're sorry it took three or four months to come out, but it's finally here. You can listen to it at wordonfire.org slash Peterson. Um, what are some of the early things you're hearing from people who have listened to the interview, Bishop? Yeah, good. You know, I've gotten a number of emails and stuff. Uh, one thing that they all say is, and it's typical of, of Peterson's podcast, it's long, you know, and it was his show that I was on, so I wasn't in control of that. But it was a, you know, a wide-ranging, lengthy conversation, and people say, gosh, I needed so much time to kind of process all that, and it should have been broken into two parts or whatever. I said, well, I know, that's that's his way of doing it. But, you know, I, I enjoyed that. He's a obviously a super bright guy, and, and uh, we both have a, a sense of the the Western intellectual tradition, and a lot of that came out. Uh, but no, I got a lot of good feedback on it. Well, I, I want to use that as a springboard into today's topic. We're talking about the odd extra strategy of you and Word on Fire. We're going to define that here in a minute. But this is so important to what you do. You've From the very beginning of your evangelistic work, you've, you've focused not as much on internal church issues and debates and questions, but you've gone out into the culture to engage with people like Jordan Peterson. And, you know, we're going to talk through this interview about other things you've done, the interviews you've done, the places you've spoken at. Why, why is that your mission? Well, it's an evangelical mission. Uh, you know, go out to all the nations and declare the good news. Uh, Urs von Balthasar uh, distinguished between those three basic offices, right? The Petrine, the Pauline, the Johannine. Uh, the Johannine is more the mystical, contemplative, the the prayerful life of the church. Petrine is the official side of the church's life. Think of of you know bishops holding office or a pastor in a parish. And the third one is the Pauline, and Paul going out right into the Greco-Roman world and going out to meet uh, the pagan society, speaking at the Areopagus, uh, crowds, uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, throwing stones at him and. That's the missionary side of the church's life, the evangelical, the intellectual, the one that engages the culture. Well, I once I the minute I read that in Balthazar, I thought, yeah, my life's been largely Pauline in form. That's been the form that my ministry has taken. So Paul was an odd extra sort of guy. Think of the fact that um, Paul rarely stayed in the churches that he founded. He would found them, get them going, and then he'd go. He'd go and establish other ones. Now, write letters back to the ones he'd established, you know. But he, he wasn't going to just stay there now for the rest of his life and govern that church. Um, that's an evangelical kind of impulse, is, is to be on the move. And also, as I've spoken many times of Acts 17, Paul on the Areopagus, that's the model in many ways. Go into the public space of a culture where ideas are exchanged, uh, where points of view that are very different from the one that you're proposing are dominant. And that's where you go. So that's that's the odd extra Pauline missionary sort of focus. That's the one that I've kind of naturally gravitated toward. 
let's define these terms that we've thrown about here, not only in this episode, but in the past. Odd extra and odd yeah. intra. What do we mean? What's the difference? Yes, yeah, so two simple Latin phrases. Uh, you'll hear the one at the at a papal conclave, you know, when they, it's time to, to lock the door and the, the master ceremony says, extra omnes, right? Everybody out. <laughs> extra, extra is outside. So odd extra means looking toward what's outside. Odd intra, on the other hand, looking toward what's on the inside. So is it a more exterior approach or a more interior approach? You know what comes right to my mind here is Pope Francis. In, in the speech that everyone says got him elected pope is when he, at the general congregations before the conclave, he talked about a church that goes out from itself, a church that goes out from the sacristy, uh, allows the the sacred oil to run down to the edge of the garment. I love that image, you know, and and the oil becomes rancid if it's if it's kept to itself, but it goes out, you know. That's the odd extra uh, style. Now, the way that I read your work over the last several years is early on, you were sort of in odd intra mode. You were a seminary professor teaching seminarians at Mundelein Seminary for many, many years. But then at some point, it seems like your mission just almost dramatically shifted to being this great evangelizer of the culture. Was there a moment when you just felt a new mission or a sense from God that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life now? Or did that, did you just kind of more fall into that? Well, it's more of an evolution than a revolution, but um, you know, and I want to make a clarification uh, to suggest that, that uh, odd extras, that's really cool. And odd intra is bad. I, I don't want to give that impression at all. The, in regard to the church, the turning within, well, that's necessary. You know, as you say correctly, Brandon, for a long time when I would give talks and lectures and retreats and and uh, days of reflection for priests, it was ad intra in a way. It was it was looking at the church, trying to encourage the church in its work, uh, trying to teach. You know, the seminarians and priests. Good. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. It's great. But I think yeah, by the end of the 1990s, maybe it's around the turn of the of the millennium. I sort of made that transition as I started doing work in radio and then on internet and then videos and television, et cetera. So, yeah, I think I began to sense the need for that. And, you know, it's deeply grounded in Vatican II. Vatican II was very much of an odd extra council, it seems to me. Um, so, yeah, I'd say but more of an evolution than a revolution. Let's talk a little bit more about Vatican II, because I think depending on one's reading of what Vatican II intended or how it played out, it may be intended to be this great ad extra uh, council. But as we've seen over the last 50 years, the, the, the wake of it was this inward focused <coughs> interchurch debates and discussions about authority and sexuality. What right. happened there? Why, well, how, well, how did we get off track? I think it's one of the great ironies, and I, I've been speaking about that for a long time. Cardinal George and I often talked about it, because Cardinal George said, I think quite rightly, Vatican II was a missionary council. John the Twenty-Third, as he called the council, said, you know, we don't have a lot of inner things to resolve. We don't have great doctrinal debates. So go back to Nicaea, Chalcedon, Council of Trent, for example, Vatican I. There were great intellectual doctrinal issues that needed to be resolved. Or at Trent, so many of the practical issues coming up out of the critique of the reformers, right? At Vatican II, John XXIII said, we don't have those. But what he intuited was, we need to get out from behind our high walls. So 
we've been cultivating this life behind these high walls, and now it's the time to bring the lumen to the gentes. I'm, I'm purposely using the, the Latin for the lumen gentium, right? The light of the nations is Christ. The church is the vehicle of that lumen. So now let's go. Come on, let's, you know, the universal call to holiness, the missionary demand, the new evangelization, all that comes out of Vatican II's vision. But, as you say, the irony is, in the wake of the Council, especially in the West, that didn't happen. Instead, we turned, I'd say, much more inward and then intensely debated those issues largely of, of sexual ethics and, I'd say, ecclesial authority. Now, mind you, important issues, absolutely. People of goodwill all across the board engaging those, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not for a minute denigrating that. But I don't think it was the purpose or intention of the council for the church to turn inward to a resolution of its interior uh, identity and so on. It was to go out you know, to the world. I think that was, see, in my mind, there's an awful lot of the agenda of Vatican II that's radically unrealized. Years ago, I was at a priest conference, and a priest said, uh, Father, isn't it time for Vatican III? And I said, oh, God, no, no, because, not that I'm, I mean, there will be a Vatican III or something someday. There'll be another council. But I said, we've barely begun to realize uh, the ideals of Vatican II. And I still think that's true. One of them being this, the, the missionary outreach. Now, the golden thread from, let's say, uh, Lumen Gentium and, and uh, Gaudium et Spes, through Paul VI, into John Paul II, into Benedict XVI, all the way to Francis. Look, read Evangelii Gaudium, if you doubt me on this. That golden thread is the, is the outward move of the church. That's the odd extra. Why do you think it is that despite... A major council like this and popes ever since it concluded emphasizing the need and urgency for this odd extra mission that so many of us nevertheless focus on the odd intra questions. Why, why is that? I'm sure there are many reasons, Brandon, but you know my guess is? Because it's easier. You know what I'm saying? The odd extra move, it's a tougher move. It's a tougher move to go out and really engage the culture. It requires a, a shared effort. Again, you remember we, last time we talked about the scattering and accusing quality. When you turn inward and you start debating the church's inner life, that's, that's fertile ground for all this accusing and dividing and so on. But together, we're going to go out to meet the culture. Together, we're going to go out to announce Christ. Um, that's tougher. That's tougher. And I think, the, again, the, the devil loves to draw us into this internecine, you know, uh, bickering and dividing and accusing. Um, so that's part of it. I think it's just tougher to get our act together and go out to meet the world. In the rest of this episode, I want to talk about some of the responses and criticisms that you've received in your own odd extra work. You're, you're one of, if not the most prominent figure doing this ad extra evangelistic work. Um, so I want to talk about some of these experiences. One of them mm -hmm. is that you've gone to a lot of places within the past year that 
would not be sympathetic to Catholicism. So, for example, the campuses of Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Um, mm-hmm. You've had conversations with Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, uh, Dave Rubin, who's an agnostic in a same-sex relationship, Jordan Peterson, who is a massively controversial figure across the board. What do you say to people who discourage you from talking with these sorts of people because they might believe or hold things that aren't in alignment with Catholics? I'd say take it up with Jesus and Paul. I mean, I'm just doing what I'm told. The Lord said, go preach to all nations. He didn't say, go preach to people that will agree with you. He didn't say, go preach to your fellow believers. He said, go preach to all nations. Take it up with Paul. Paul in the Areopagus, is he talking to people that will naturally agree with him? Paul goes into a synagogue and they throw stones at him. Uh, Paul goes out to to any city he comes to. I mean, uh, we've been doing this from the beginning. And it's been the charge of the church because we have the missionary obligation to preach to all nations. Uh, Tell Thomas Aquinas, you know, as he engages the work of Aristotle, which, believe me, did not make him popular with a lot of people in the 13th century. that thought he was, you know, he was diluting the the wine of the gospel with this with this fetid water of a pagan philosopher. So, I mean, this is an old problem. Um, But I I take it up with Jesus. He's he told me to preach to all nations. And so uh, I can play it safe and just talk to my fellow believers. And again, I have nothing, I've done that a lot. I have nothing against speaking to my fellow believers, but that's not the evangelical strategy. So I think, you know, you got to do it. Is it messy, painful, uh, dangerous, sometimes getting you in, in trouble? Yeah, but read the Acts of the Apostles. Pick up any page of the Acts of the Apostles, and you'll see messiness, danger, getting in trouble, uh, maybe not doing it exactly right. Think, for example, again, of the famous Acts 17. Uh, One way to read that is Paul gave his speech on the Areopagus and then realized, no, that wasn't the right way to do it. I I, I need to – then we hear Paul saying, I preach one thing, Christ and him crucified, right? Uh, All right, all right, that's the way it goes. Sometimes you're going to hit a home run. Other times you might get a solid single. Other times you might strike out. But I, I think we can't be afraid, you know. Oh, I didn't say it exactly right. Or, oh, that didn't go exactly how I wanted it to go. Or, boy, I got a lot of critique. All right, you're in the arena, you know. So was Paul. And so were, were the, the evangelists up and down the centuries. So I guess that's my, my argument, Brandon, is take it up with Jesus and Paul. One one related problem that I see in the general culture, this isn't only with your experiences talking with these people, is the assumption that if person A appears on stage with person B, then person A must de facto agree with everything (laughs) person A has said or yeah. done or stands for. We saw this with your um, USCCB presentation, which we yeah. talked about last week. Even the mention of one aspect of Jordan Peterson's work that you admired generated this whole outcry of people who said, you know, they're fellow travelers, they're allies, they're walking yeah. on the same path. Uh, how do you respond to this sort of assumption? Well, it it's, goes with the territory, um, sadly. I think of my great uh, intellectual hero, Robert Sokolowski, you know, philosophy is the art of making distinctions. And people, man, have they lost that art of, of making the right distinctions. And that's one of them. Like, okay, he's on the stage with this guy, and they're having a conversation. It doesn't mean he's now an ally of this guy. He, he's an acolyte of this guy. He totally approves of everything this guy's ever said and done. I mean, come on. Come on. Um, that comes up. Maybe we'll get to it, but it comes up in uh, – you review a movie, 
you know, because you find something that's that's evocative of the gospel in it. Oh, therefore, you approve of everything every character in that movie has done. I mean, come on. Uh, Aquinas used Aristotle. Oh, therefore, he subscribes to every single teaching of Aristotle. Well, obviously, he doesn't. And he was eminently clear on that score. So it's that, that globalizing thinking, that, that's a failure to make the relevant distinctions. That's, it's annoying, but it's also par for the course. But you can't let it stop you. See, something, Brandon, actually, I bring to prayer a lot. I do my holy hour, you know, and I'm, I'm, I pray about the work that I do. And uh, you can't let it stop you. Because, again, that's, I think, I think part of the, the devil's strategy is to say he wants to get in the way of evangelizing the culture. And that's a way to do it. So, again, he'll stir up division and accusing and bickering in order to block uh, the work being done. I know another criticism that you've sometimes received, because we've seen it through emails coming into Word on Fire, is that you strategically only talk to conservative or right-leaning people and that you don't appear on an equal number of left-leaning platforms. Uh, is that is that true? Is that part of your strategy? No, because no, first of all, I, Nagel uh, Mayorum, I, mean, I, I deny the major premise. It's a false premise because, as you mentioned earlier, Brandon, I've been to uh, Google headquarters. Now, say what you want about Google – uh, a conservative, a bastion of conservatism would not spring to mind. I've spoken at Facebook headquarters. Say what you want about Facebook. Bastion of right-wing ideology would not spring to mind. I was up uh, at um, at uh, Amazon headquarters in Seattle. Say what you want about Amazon. You know, So it's not true that I've just spoken to you know right-wing people. I've spoken to all kinds of uh, left-leaning groups. And, and if they give me a platform, I'll go. They won't censor what I'm going to say. Uh, they won't, uh, you know, at least <laughs> to my face, mock me. I mean, I'll go. So, no, it's not It's not true that I just speak to, you know, right-wing people. What would you say to people listening to this interview, maybe members of the Word and Fire Institute, maybe young evangelists who want to follow your footsteps into this odd extra mission? What encouragement would you offer them? And then what cautions? Well, as I've said many times before, if you want to do this kind of work, uh, read, 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 and then begin to read. You know what I'm saying? Is that you've got to be prepared knowing the intellectual uh, tradition of the church. Because if you're going to get into this space where you don't expect a sympathetic audience, if you've got a really sympathetic audience, you can get away with a lot. Let's face it. I mean, because they're assuming a lot of the same things you are. So you're making your argument. And, and maybe you're making a pretty bad argument. But but they like you and they sympathize with you, so they're going to, you know, they'll accept the kind of soft edges of your argument. Well, not in the odd extra space where they are programmed not to like you. They probably have powerful disagreement with you. Their instinct is to think you're wrong. Well, your arguments better be pretty sharp then, you know. They're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so to go wandering into that space uh, – unarmed and unprotected is not wise <laughs> you know if you, you might be full of goodwill boy i want to declare jesus christ and i'm full of love and that's great that's great you should be full of love but you got to be full of brains too and you better have your arguments straight or uh, you're not going to get very far and in fact you'll do damage to the church because you'll look stupid and you'll look un, unprepared and people will say oh there it is there's the church doesn't know what it's talking about so that's my first thing. I'd say get yourself, you know, prepared. 
and armed and uh, and intellectually uh, adept at this thing. You know, the dangers, go back to Baltazar. Uh, he saw in each of the three uh, uh, missions, the Petrine, Pauline, and uh, Johannine, there were typical dangers. Uh, the Petrine is you become, he said, petrified. That means <laughs> it, that in your official status, you can become so geared to the law and to order that, that you become, you know, tyrannical. Uh, the Johannine side, you can become so into the liturgical and the prayerful that you become uncritical and superstitious. Now, the Pauline danger is rationalism. Hmm. So you're so eager to engage the culture with argument that you can drink the Kool-Aid or you can go over to the – you can go native, as I used to say, you know, that you can become as rationalistic as your opponents. And you forget the discipline of the church. You forget about prayer, etc. So rationalism is the great danger of those who take the Pauline path. Um, it is. It's, it's dicey. You know, when you're engaging in that world, heck, I, I've heard so many – you have too, of course – so many arguments against religion. I hear them all the time. Well, that can take a toll on you. You know, if you're not if you're not prepared and and steeled by prayer, etc., you can start to say, "Yeah, maybe that's right." <laughs> you know, so it is a little bit dangerous to go into the the odd extra world unless you're prepared intellectually and spiritually and morally. Can you say a little bit more about the spiritual preparation? I mean, for yourself, with all this work, you know, critics online, whatever, what do you do spiritually to prepare yourself for that and to secure yourself afterward? The, the holy hour is the key to me. And I, you know, this morning, uh, I, I'm an early riser, so I spent an hour in prayer in the, my chapel. Um, I pray part of the office during that time. I pray the rosary typically during that time, uh, the Jesus prayer. Um, I, I, to me, that's the key. I also ask whenever I meet a religious community, especially of contemplatives, I'll ask them to pray for me. So I get people and I'll say, pray for me in this work that I have, because it's dangerous. It's difficult work. Um, but I think my, my own prayer, Brandon, is the, is the key. Um, not that I'm, I'm not susceptible to these, uh, uh, temptations I've been talking about. I am, you know. Anyone that does this kind of work, I think Paul was. I think Paul faced some of that difficulty. Um, and then, yeah, the, the criticism. If you're in the arena, some will cheer and some will throw rotten vegetables at you. Okay, that's what it means to be in the arena. And see, e see, if you're in the arena, no matter what you say or don't say, you'll get vegetables thrown at you. <laughs> right? So one option is get out of the arena. And that's, okay, leave the odd extra thing. Get out of the arena, and then you probably won't get critiqued. Um, but if you're in it, just expect it, period. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. Today we have one from Catherine, who lives in Pennsylvania. She's asking about Jesus and his healing miracles. So here's Catherine's question. Bishop Barron, my name is Catherine, and I'm from Pennsylvania. I was just calling in to ask, why is it Jesus always tells people who he has healed not to tell anybody about it? Thank you so much. God bless you, and have a great day. That's a good question. It, it speaks to what the scholars call the messianic secret. 
so Jesus is the Messiah, and he tells his disciples in many cases that that's his identity, but then he's quick to say, now don't talk about it. Or as you say correctly here, when he'll heal someone, say, now don't, don't spread this word around. Now they usually do anyway, right? <laughs> but they think the reason is this, that Jesus knew that his Messiahship would be interpreted almost, almost necessarily in a political direction. And so once they, they got the idea, oh, this is the Messiah, and we hear in one of the Gospels, they tried to make him king, you know. They, they wanted him to lead the rebellion against Rome. They, they would read it politically. And so he wanted to keep it secret so that they would see what kind of Messiah he would be. Now, I think one of the most eloquent things is in the Gospel of Mark, where the Messianic secret is very powerful. No, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. But when does someone say for the first time unambiguously, this man's the son of God? The centurion, when Jesus in death can no longer say, don't tell anybody. Now tell everybody, because now we see what real messiahship looks like. It looks like the suffering of the cross, right? Uh, and I think that's the church's message, is that now we indeed proclaim Jesus, Mashiach, that's all Christos, Christ means, right? But we do it because we know the cross and the resurrection. We know what kind of messiah he is, so we don't have to keep the secret anymore. Well, thanks so much, Catherine, for that great question. If you have a question, be sure to visit askbishopbaron.com. And before we go here, this whole episode, we've been discussing the odd extra strategy of Bishop Barron and Word on Fire. If you'd like to help us with that, visit the website wordonfire.org slash unaffiliated. It's a new website we put together that highlights all of these initiatives we've been working on from the discussion at some of the major Silicon Valley headquarters to cultural influencers and movers and shakers that Bishop Barron's been engaging. The thing is, we've mentioned before here, all that stuff takes time, energy, and money to pull off. Um, just the, the audio video requirements alone are, are pretty expensive. And if you'd like to help make more of this happen, to help Bishop Barron engage more with this odd extra mission, we invite you to join us by supporting us at wordonfire.org slash unaffiliated. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. 